The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound Off. Talking about a huge issue here is investment in marginalized communities. They want to deconstruct this package and cherry pick what they like and what they don't like. China is surging forward with major investments. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Emily Wilkins here with my co-host Jack Fitzpatrick on this rainy Monday. We're going to get into a number of things on today's show, including what you should expect later this week when the heads of major banks appear before a House panel. We'll be speaking with one of the lawmakers set to grill them this Thursday. Also, an update on President Biden's infrastructure plan, meeting headwinds in Congress, and the latest on Belarus, the Middle East, and China. I'm Emily Wilkins here in our D.C. studio, along with my co-host Jack Fitzpatrick, getting you through the end part of another Monday. In just a minute, we are going to be joined by Democratic Pennsylvania Congresswoman Madeline Dean. But first, we're getting some breaking news across the terminal. It sounds like European Union leaders have agreed to sanctions on Belarus. The country came under scrutiny over the weekend when a commercial airliner was forced to ground and an opposition activist was taken off the plane. There's been widespread condemnation of this move and we've been hearing more from today from world leaders, but certainly uh, this European Union block is one of the big ones that we were watching today. I mean, Jack, what what do you sort of make of, of what we're hearing right now with these? sanctions. Well, it was pretty significant news that the EU uh, agreed, according to reporting from the AP just a little bit earlier this afternoon, uh, against Belarus, including a a ban on the use of airspace. But I think there are some really important unanswered questions, especially as it pertains to the U.S. You know, there was the news that Vladimir Putin is going to meet with the Belarusian president, Alexander Lukashenko, uh, seemingly in a a sign of support uh, after the arrest of of this dissident. And it really seems to raise the question, what does the U.S. do as in response to this as it pertains to not only Belarus, but Russia backing up Lukashenko? So I, I would point that out as one of the really key outstanding questions now. And Jack, we're going to get into that later, but now we're going to turn to Congress for a minute. You know, the U.S. House of Representatives, they're out of town for the next three weeks, but that does not mean that they are stopping working. They're going to be continuing from their district as they make progress on a number of bills, including changes to policing, President's Biden infrastructure bill. And a big thing this week, the House Financial Services Committee is holding a hearing with the heads of major banks on Thursday, where they will be questioned by a number of lawmakers, including Pennsylvania. 
Pennsylvania Congresswoman and noted Wawa superfan, Madeline Dean. Congresswoman, we're so grateful to have you join us today on the show. You know, later this week, uh, you will be at a hearing with the heads of numerous major banks, including JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America. What are you going to be looking for in this hearing? And what are you going to be asking the heads of these major banks? Well, Emily, thank you for having me. Thank you for noting that when we are back in district, uh, we're not only doing committee work, we're doing district work and outreach. Uh, so, And also, thank you for noting I am a, a Wawa fan, <laughs> uh, unabashed Wawa fan. Uh, I am looking forward to this, this hearing with the big banks. Uh, I've been part of several hearings uh, in my freshman term uh, on financial services. Uh, and my line of questioning is often towards uh, governance. How are these big banks governing themselves uh, under the regulations uh, as they appear now? What do we need to know as policymakers to make sure we hold them accountable for transparency uh, and good governance and uh, for consumer protection? We've seen uh, some of the big banks uh, get hit with very uh, massive fines uh, for um, mistakes they made. Uh, and so I want to see where they are in terms of consumer protection, caring about the customer who comes in their bank or goes online uh, and, and uh, borrows from them or stays with them. That's what I want to know. Congresswoman Jack Fitzpatrick here. Thanks for joining us. I, more specifically on that note, um, I, I'm curious about how this breaks down either to supporting Dodd-Frank, which many Republicans don't like, or going for something bigger. Do you think that, that Dodd-Frank uh, did enough? Or do you, when you are asking questions of these bank CEOs, do you have in mind anything more punitive, uh, more penalties for any wrongdoing? It, I guess my, my question really is, do you want to protect the progress that you believe has been made, or do you want to push more for more transparency or greater penalties on banks? Jack, I'd to be with you also. Uh, I, I, I want both. Uh, sorry, I, I tend to be that way. I want to make sure that the reforms of Dodd-Frank are, are lived out and lived up to, uh, but where there are gaps, where consumers are, uh, uh, are not being protected or where consumers are being taken advantage of. We have a role to play as policymakers to make sure that doesn't happen in a very changing marketplace at a really challenging time. This is a time of a pandemic where people's economic uh, future has been unsteady and unsure, where families are trying to get folks back to work. They're trying to catch up on mortgage payments or rent payments or credit card payments. Uh, Student loan debt is a, a continuing issue. The big banks are, are not in the student loan world uh, much at all anymore. But all of these measures uh, need to make sure I'm, – I'm somebody who wants to make sure we, we reinforce, meet the marketplace, uh, protecting the consumer first uh, while uh, allowing banks to be competitive and, and uh, meet their uh, needs for shareholders and, and marketplace. 
Congresswoman, you know, the, the banks that are coming to this hearing, they are some of the uh, global systemically important banks in the U.S. And in the past decade, as Jack pointed out, you know, these banks were bailed out after the 2008 recession. They've continued to grow even bigger than before. They hold half of domestic banking assets in the U.S., nearly $4 trillion in loans. I I'm wondering, are you concerned that these banks are getting too big? Is there additional regulation that's needed there? Certainly, we have to be concerned with that. Uh, and so on financial services, we pay attention not just to the big banks. Uh, we pay attention to credit unions. We pay attention to community bankers. Uh, we have to make sure that, A, the big banks don't have unfair advantage and unfair uh, support, uh, policy support or, or elsewhere. Uh, but we also want to make sure that they are a part of this full economic recovery. You know, we've seen an awful lot of local lenders jump in uh, as we were trying to make the rules as we went along with CARES and CARES uh, 2.0, uh, and now with the American Rescue Plan, with PPP and all the rest. Um, I, I want to make sure, uh, you know, I'm also uh, on judiciary, and we're looking at uh, antitrust issues. We don't want any one entity, platform, whatever it is, to be so large uh, that it holds monopoly power or that it's so large that if it fails, more people around them fail. So, Congressman, I, I want to ask about, uh, I guess, a tangentially related issue, or at least I think it's relevant to someone on the Finance Committee. Uh, I saw the news today that over in the Senate, Elizabeth Warren is pushing for a measure that not only would about triple the IRS budget, and there has been so much talk about increasing IRS enforcement, but also, interestingly, make IRS funding mandatory rather than discretionary, meaning that would not be subject to an annual debate. It's supposed to not be politicized. Where do you come down on uh, not just the idea of increasing the IRS's budget, but making that mandatory funding and kind of putting that on autopilot? Jack, I haven't read that proposal. Uh, what I am in favor of is part of what that proposal talks about, which is uh, greater funding to IRS. IRS is only going to be as effective as we fund it appropriately. Uh, we know that it has been underfunded uh, and therefore Part of the problem of our revenue streams is our inability to collect all of the revenue owed us. Uh, so tax folks who are just skipping and not paying taxes, businesses who are not paying taxes. So I favor the first part of what you just said, which is increased funding to IRS in order to make sure uh, that those who are not paying their fair share pay their fair share. Estimates are high uh, as to what is uncollected every single year. As we approach this American Jobs Plan, that has to be a part of the revenue stream. Uh, in terms of making a permanent, I'll take a look at that. I, I don't have an opinion on it because I want to read it and understand it. You know, Congresswoman, mentioning the American Jobs Plan, I actually want to ask you a little bit about those particular negotiations. Um, you yourself, I believe, are a member of the House Progressive Caucus, and about 60 of your colleagues recently signed a letter asking House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and then Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to not scale back President Biden's infrastructure package in GOP negotiations, but to go and really try and get the biggest package that they could 
for the American people. Now, when I, when I saw that letter, I scanned it twice. I didn't see your signature on it, but I want to just get your thoughts on how long the Democrats and Republicans should try to debate to reach a compromise before Democrats just need to say, you know what, we need to get going on this. I have to tell you, I'm with the spirit of that letter. May, I may not have signed on to it in this respect. I hope that whatever we do is transformational, is a generational investment in infrastructure in all its forms. Uh, we can't be stuck in the 1900s in terms of what is infrastructure. Uh, and I think of it really literally in terms of my grandchildren. I have three. I have a fourth one on the way. Uh, I want to make sure that as we invest in our communities, my uh, older ring suburb of Philadelphia, for example, that we are investing looking at the future so it's more walkable, it's more bikeable, it's safer, uh, it's, it's where people want to live and work and play. They can get on mass transit with ease. Uh, they, they have confidence in their water supply and the pipes that bring them that water and that the water is clean, that it is paying close attention uh, to uh, climate change and making sure we protect our planet and live up to our obligation there. So I am all in favor of as robust a package as we can come up with. In terms of timing, uh, I thought uh, the president, I, I, I'm not going to be negotiating this package, uh, but I'll keep fighting for the top number of dollars that makes the most transformational change. And if the Republicans cannot come to the table, we need to move along and make sure we pass the infrastructure bill. You noted that we passed the American Rescue Plan. Sadly, we did not have a single Republican to support those incredibly powerful resources coming into every single one of our districts, whether our districts are led by a Republican member of Congress or a Democrat. Well, so we much... can and we will lead. I prefer to do it with Republican support. This is something that ought to be bipartisan. Sure, but I'm wondering how much it's going to take Republicans to get on board. I mean, you saw the White House come back on Friday with a slimmer $1.7 trillion plan that's a concession of about, what, $500 billion? And you saw Senate Republicans give a very cold shoulder to this. I mean, at what point do you say, you know what, we need to move forward with this package. We can't wait anymore for Republicans to, to find a path to yes. I'm, I'm not sure what that moment is, and I know those negotiating do. But you know what is the larger picture here. This is a Republican Party at war with itself, trying to figure out who it is. Uh, and that part of the fallout of that is uh, legislative stagnation on their part. So we can't let them stagnate this bill too long. Uh, we'll have to move forward. But we have a Republican majority take a look at Mr. McCarthy, who deputized Representative Katzko to negotiate the uh, one six commission and he got a bipartisan agreement to have equal number of commissioners equal power over, over subpoena it was approved and then mr mccarthy undermining his own member said he was no longer in favor of it that is a party at war with itself uh and unable to face the truth uh that is having a direct impact on legislative priorities so, Congresswoman, what's the backup plan on January 6th? I mean, if Republicans are now against this, and we heard uh, from Mitch McConnell in the Senate, he opposes the plan for the commission. Uh, do you just try to push forward the same kind of thing? Or, or what's the next step for Democrats who do want a commission to treat this like a 9-11 type event? Well, 
I hope our constituents uh, are the driving force. But Americans say we need to know the truth of what happened. After all, this was no Tuesday tour. This was the Tuesday in which the electors would be confirmed and the presidential election would be confirmed. Uh, and instead, what happened? A riot, an insurrection incited by the President of the United States, and we're not sure who else uh, entirely is a part of that, uh, descended upon the seat of our government during a joint session with uh, the Vice President there. The, the precious thing we all talk about as Americans, so special to us, is the peaceful transfer of power. And that's the first time that was interrupted since the Civil War. Uh, it's stunning to me. Uh, so I keep pushing that we get the independent commission. So we take the politics out of it. And that you wouldn't, the commissioners would be uh, non-elected, they'd be experts in their field, uh, to take out the, the poisonous, toxic narrative uh, that can come up uh, around January the 6th. I can't imagine any public servant, especially somebody like me who was there in the madness, in the mayhem, taken out in a gas mask. Mm -hmm. People died that day. Americans attacked Americans at their seat of government. We need to know the truth and have the truth take it where it may. Uh, I'm not afraid of the truth. I, I'm prepared to testify, tell anything I know from my walking around the building and being there that day. Every single member of Congress should feel the same way. Mr. McConnell, uh, Mr. McCarthy should say, independent commission, and we're first to testify. You know, Congressman, I, I did want to ask you very quickly, you know, I, I watched the House floor very closely, and I know the other week there was an issue with a bill that you brought to the floor, and sort of the root of it was that you used to uh, sort of lead, sponsor on that with a Republican who then went ahead and voted uh, to oppose Pennsylvania's electoral uh, college votes, and I know that that caused attention over the bill. And I'm just wondering sort of where you see Congress going from here, is there any way for the lawmakers to um, I don't get past is not the word I want to use, but come to some sort of uh, reconciliation over what happened January 6th and find a way for lawmakers to vote again, or are these divisions that are going to be lasting for decades? Oh, I hope not. And I think the only path for that kind of uh, reconciliation, for your to use your word, Emily and Jack, uh, would would be to make sure we, we have a full independent commission that gets at the truth. I was um, uh, proud in a most sober way to be uh, an impeachment manager with the team so ably led by Jamie Raskin, a team of nine, um, and, and of course a team of people behind us. And we did put on the record back as we knew them at that time, and the record is extraordinarily clear. But the American people have more to learn. Uh, and so uh, the, the sad squabble uh, with Representative Carter, uh, I, I think, it, again, is indicative of the Republican Party not focusing on policy, but tethering themselves to a failed president, a president who lost uh, his election, who lost the House, who lost the Senate. Uh, but somehow uh, some of them just want to continue uh, to, to remain tethered to those failed policies and failed politics. Uh, Mr. Carter got his feelings hurt when I suggested that he would not co-lead the bill with me, though I invited him to co-sponsor the bill that I know he believes in. Uh, fortunately, we were able to get the bill passed this week, this past week, and it's an important bill about, it's called the Fairness in Drug 
Exclusivity Act, and it closes a loophole that allowed drug manufacturers to claim uh, orphan drug status, protecting them for seven years of manufacturing and sales, uh, when really they did not any longer qualify for orphan drug status. So it allows generics to get to the, to the market faster, get cheaper drugs uh, priced uh, to the market faster. And so it's a shame that Mr. Carter uh, threw two votes against the bill that I know he believes in. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The continuing interesting dynamics of our current Congress. Congresswoman Dean, thank you so much for joining us today. Lots of good insights there. That was Pennsylvania Democrat Congresswoman Madeline Dean. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to Jack Fitzpatrick, my co-host here at Sound On. Jack, and we covered a, a wide array of topics yeah. there. I'm wondering what stood out to you um, from what the Congresswoman said. Yeah, well, where do we start? Uh, I, I guess we should start with infrastructure because I thought this was really interesting. And I'm glad that we have Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano with us. And I've given Jeannie a hard time about being kind of pessimistic about infrastructure, although I think she's kind of accurate there. So the Congresswoman said at this point, this still ought to be bipartisan, which kind of separates her from some of the other progressives who have said, no, let's just go on our own. The Democrats should just do our own thing, do it through budget reconciliation, and, and the Republicans aren't being serious enough. But she, you know, when you pressed her, Emily, she said, I don't know what that moment is when we give up on that. So I, I'm not sure there's really a plan there for Democrats uh, and progressives. Jeannie, what did, what did you make of, of the fact that the Congresswoman said, look, at this point, we should still continue to try uh, to work through this in a bipartisan way? Is that naive of her? Or what did you make of that? You know, I think theoretically she's right. They should be able to get to agreement on this. It's something that we all know that both Democrats and Republicans have wanted for a long time. And the state of the infrastructure in the country is deplorable. I mean, it puts us behind many developing nations, if that. So it's desperately needed to be done. She's right. There should be agreement. But I think the reality here is the calendar is working against an agreement at this point. We are in this season of political paralysis as we enter the pre-election. And I know, you know, talking about elections right now seems crazy, but we are in pre-election season at this point, and that is part of what is causing this paralysis. The other thing is that Republicans have been clear that they are not going to negotiate with the president. I mean, I think back to last week, he, President Biden, the administration, puts out a counterproposal, and the, the Republicans come back almost immediately and dismiss it. So we we know that Memorial Day was the president's sort of end date. Uh, I don't know if they'll stretch it out, but sort of an end date for this. And I think we are reaching that very, very quickly. I think you were, it was fascinating to hear Representative Dean say she thinks that we should go forward and get a bipartisan agreement here, but the clock is working against that. 
Absolutely. And, you know, it's one of those things where you hear about this and you, you know, Jeannie, I think you were perfect tying it to the fact that we do have an upcoming election. This bill is a big part of Democrats' plan to woo voters in the midterms that we have coming up. And if you look at Congresswoman, where Congresswoman Dean is from, you know, Philadelphia tends to be a very Democratic area. But if you pull back and look at the wider state, Pennsylvania is very much a battleground here. And you're going to have a very competitive Senate race that's coming up. And I'm sure that that's something that she's thinking of on the whole, not just her district, but also the state. Uh, Jeannie, I also wanted to ask you very quickly what you thought about the Congresswoman's comments in regards to the upcoming uh, hearing on Thursday with the major heads of the banks. Are we actually expecting Democrats to try to move forward legislation that might come with additional regulations? I think they would very much like to do that. I think that is why we see Maxine Waters, the chair of the committee, really pushing for this hearing. I'm fascinated to see what is going to happen on Thursday. And more importantly, to your point, what can come out of this? We are talking amongst Democrats like Waters and, you know, Sherrod Brown and others. These are really tough Wall Street critics. They've called for breaking up banks. You're going to have the heads, as, as you and Jack were talking about, about these of these major banks before them. I think they're going to face tough questioning. But again, Jack will probably accuse me of being pessimistic. <laughs> I'm not sure how much deals we can get done on, on any big bills at this point. Somet sometimes that's <laughs> smart. Sometimes it's smart to be pessimistic. Well, we're going to turn a little bit to international politics over the weekend in what sounds like a story from a spy novel. A commercial airline flying over Belarus was grounded and an opposition activist, Roman Patasevich, was taken off the plane. Uh, the move has been met with widespread condemnation. Uh, just this afternoon, European Union leaders agreed on a broader economic sanctions against Belarus for the forced landing of the plane. Uh, the 27 leaders have met in Brussels today, and they also demanded the immediate release of Prasadovich. Uh, and they was something that we've also heard calls from from the U.S. Uh, White House uh, Press Secretary Jen Psaki spoke a little bit on this today, and we have the sound on that. This was a shocking act, diverting a flight between two EU member states for the apparent purpose of arresting a journalist. It constitutes a brazen affront to international peace and security by the regime. We demand an immediate, international, transparent, and credi credible investigation of this incident. You know, the European Union leaders, they're moving very quickly on this particular incident. Jeannie, at this point, what role does the U.S. have here? You know, both the European Union and the U.S. have previously put sanctions on Belarus. Is the U.S.'s role to support our allies in Europe, or does the U.S. need to sort of go its own way here in really showing uh, its condemnation toward this action? You know, I think the U.S. would like the EU to take the lead on this, certainly um, as we just heard in that clip you played, uh, the administration has been very critical of what many people are calling, you know, an absolutely brazen act of state-sponsored hijacking. I have to say, I can't recall something similar to this um, in recent years, if at all. And, you know, I would just underscore that Lukashenko, right afterwards, didn't even appear to be, um, you know, mildly, you know, taken aback or deterred by, by the EU, the U.S., and most of the rest of the world calling out this action. He, in fact, doubled down and signed a bunch of new laws 
you know, really crushing further dissent of the kind that this let's remember 26 year old blogger was engaged in that led to this you know incredibly stunning act so you know there's so many aspects of this story that are fascinating and of course that the idea he's a 26 year old blogger and it leads to this and they're doubling down the eu has to take a strong stance i think they're they've done that today they're going to move towards that and the u.s has to support him and let's not forget we've got a meeting with biden and putin scheduled in june and not None of this would have happened unless Putin had signed off on it. So I'm curious to see how that impacts the meeting as well, if at all. Well, that's what I want to know more about here, and, and hopefully we learn more as, as time goes on. But uh, Jeannie, what do you make of how the relationship between Putin and Lukashenko affects this? And in particular, I'm curious if that drags the U.S. in even more than they otherwise would be. As you mentioned, the Biden-Putin meeting is is something they're working on setting up. But uh, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Putin is set to meet with Lukashenko shortly at some point in the near future, shortly after this really brazen act arresting a dissident, um, does that make this more of a an issue for Biden immediately? Because maybe you can sort of ignore Belarus alone. But if this is happening seemingly clearly with, with a, a nod from Putin, that seems to make it much more of a, I guess, a, a threatening issue for U.S. national security. Tell us what, what do you make of the 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 presence of Putin in all of this. You know, he he looms large over all of this. I think most people familiar with this part of the world understand that again none of this would have happened without Putin agreeing to it, signing off on it. And of course, there were confirmed cheers from Putin and others when this happened. And hence the meeting that you're talking about between these two that precedes the meeting that's supposed to take place between President Biden and Putin in June, which is not that long away. And so I think it is going to potentially play a role. Joe Biden being the person and the president he has been in this first 100 days, I don't think he will allow this to deter a meeting. I'm not sure he will react to it in some public way, but he does seem to hold Putin's feet to the fire. His language has been very tough on Putin, both to his face and to, you know, publicly. So I do think he will call out these actions. And also in international news, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is traveling to the Middle East today to ensure the ceasefire between Israel and Hamas holds. Uh, Blinken's planning to meet with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, as well as Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, as well as other top officials in Egypt and Jordan. And part of this trip is going to be Blinken focusing on bolstering the U.S.-Palestinian relationship, which is something that we saw a lot of pressure on President Biden to do from progressives in his own party. I mean, Jack, you and I both watch Congress so closely and we've watched sort of things unfold here. I'm wondering sort of what you think that uh, Secretary Blinken needs to do on this trip to make sure that he is both uh, appeasing our relationship with Israel, but also making sure that those in the Democratic Party who believe that we should be doing more outreach, outreach to Palestine are also satisfied. Well, I mean, clearly 
clearly they they just want things to not flare up anymore because a, a flare up between Israel and Palestine is what uh, causes the domestic politics flare up here on this issue. And I, I think it's notable, obviously, and, and probably unsurprising that he's going to Cairo because the U.S. seems to have leaned pretty heavily on Egypt as a negotiator. Jeannie, I'm curious. Uh, well, wait, maybe we don't have enough time, but I, I think it's it's very notable the Cairo aspect of this Are and we- Egypt's involvement. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here with a co-host of mine, the fantastic Bloomberg government reporter Emily Wilkins. And, of course, we've got Bloomberg politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano. We are hitting a speed bump on infrastructure. Did we use that pun? Did we use that infrastructure pun already? We're, we're going to get, we're a, a gonna lot get of them. all of them in, Jack. We've got, we've got, we've got a backload of it, them. It doesn't seem like it's going great. Uh, we heard a, a lot from Senate Republicans in, in terms of negative feedback on the latest uh, pitch $1.7 trillion plan from the White House. The Republicans said that wasn't enough off of their $2.25 trillion proposal originally. So what exactly is the issue? Well, Senator Roy Blunt, Republican from Missouri, got into some of the specifics and defined what the issue really is on Fox News Sunday yesterday. Let's listen to what he had to say. I think the president would like to get there on a bipartisan deal. Our biggest gap is not the money. Our biggest gap is defining what infrastructure is. And if we'd get to a definition of infrastructure that the country would have always accepted, uh, that becomes uh, a much narrower uh, space than it appears to be right now. Okay, but if that's the issue, how close are we? Uh, Is this a a really big gap or a pretty small gap? Senator Susan Collins, who is often widely believed to be a a very key moderate vote, Republican from Maine, talked yesterday on ABC's This Week. Let's listen to what she had to say. I think we're still pretty far apart, but this is the test. This will determine whether or not we can work together in a bipartisan way on an important issue. And the other important area where we're far apart is still the money. Okay, so it sounds like they kind of disagree with each other. Roy Blunt saying the main issue is still, what is infrastructure? Collins adding, well, the money amount is pretty important. The difference in terms of a dollar figure, as I mentioned, there's a $1.7 trillion proposal by the White House. The last proposal we, proposal we've seen from Senate Republicans was $568 billion. Jeannie, uh, are we just stuck at this intractable issue of what counts as infrastructure and what should go in this bill? Do you think we've hit uh, just a brick wall and there's not much room for negotiation beyond here? Jack, we have hit a pothole when it comes to infrastructure, as I have been telling you all along. Though We have um, hit a pothole, but are we at a dead end? <laughs> oh, I love it. We'd just go on. I think it's a bump, Emily. Um, you know, I, I think they're, they're both right. You know, there's, I think, three things that we're seeing. One is the definition. Um, one is the pay for and one is how big the bill is going to be. I think between those three things, if they could come to some agreement, negotiate those through, they could come to some bill. And we have seen, you know, some indications Republicans may go as high as 800, 900 billion. I don't know if the White House is prepared to go any lower than the 1.7 trillion. And of course, Republicans are balking a bit saying that, you know, the White House put out this counter proposal and yet they just stuck that money in another bill. So they didn't really make any big change there, according to Republicans. And of course, Democrats are saying, 
listen, we've been trying to negotiate. It's clear you don't want to move. The president should just go forward without that. So I think we're going to, you know, I think this week, last week, this week, if they can't get much headway, we're looking at about five weeks on a bill this big. I'm not so sure they can get there before the recess. And of course, as you guys both know, they have regular business to attend to, like making sure we have a budget and no government shutdown on top of voting bills, crime bills, Yeah, like we're going to do that. So, yeah, I mean, it's a big agenda. So, But I do think all three of those issues are, are really holding them up at this point. No, absolutely. And Jeannie, I think you're so spot on when you talk about the timing element here. And it's not just that they, oh, you know, they need to pass a bill at some point before 2022. The idea, and I was talking for some people up on the Hill who said, you know, the idea is, is that we not only want this bill passed, but we want it to start being implemented before the midterm election. We want to see shovels and grounds. We want to see voters going to polling places, having already started to see changes in their communities and benefits from this legislation. And so there is sort of uh, an election component to hear when you get into talking with lawmakers and, and other Hill folk about what they're aiming for here. You know, Jack, you and I have both covered elections, congressional elections, what sort of makes them tick. And I'm wondering sort of how much you think that a bill like this could potentially factor into the midterms. I mean, if Democrats wind up passing four trillion dollars in infrastructure and in child care in you know, paid unemployment leave, is this something that's going to have a really big impact with voters or is just this just going to be one piece of the pie when people go to the ballots next November? Well, a number of the sort of big spending agenda stuff that Democrats have pushed polls pretty well. I think they're very excited. This isn't really an infrastructure thing, but Democrats are very excited about the child tax credit that they got in the stimulus that they want to uh, extend or even make permanent at some point. And we'll see what they attach that to. Maybe that does become part of an infrastructure package. But, you know, there's on the flip side, the Democrats clearly don't feel like they can just push their own stuff through in a partisan way because there is sort of this show uh, of, of a bipartisan back and forth. And we've talked on this show before about, you know, is this a legitimate bipartisan negotiation or is it, a, is it for show? Is it because these members need to show their constituents they are trying to work in a bipartisan way? Honestly, I, I really can't entirely tell. But I think there are a number of things that the Democrats want to check off. They want to get something done on this. They need to act on the climate. That's, that's a, a high priority. But they also, at the same time, need to show that they're not just going to ram every through, everything through in a partisan way, or if they do, at least they tried to work with Republicans before. And again, I, I don't know how long that lasts. And in fact, the Congresswoman, uh, Congresswoman Dean, didn't know exactly how long that lasts if Republicans keep holding out. But it, it, you're right, it is a really significant campaign issue. Uh, and you know, I, I mentioned uh, Senator Collins, who obviously, among all the members, has to show she's trying trying to work in a bipartisan way in a state like Maine. I'm curious, though, about uh, Senator Murkowski. And I want to talk a little bit about Murkowski in this cruise bill uh, later. But it, Murkowski was supposed to go to this signing at some point this afternoon and have a chance to talk with the president about a different issue. But uh, today, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki mentioned Murkowski uh, being there in the context of, you know, maybe the infrastructure proposal can come up 
Jeannie, who do you think we should be looking for? So much of the conversation has has circled around Joe Manchin as pushing this bipartisan uh, series of discussions. But who are the Republicans who are the main focus? Is Murkowski it? Is it Collins? It, or, or are they just looking for a massive bipartisan kind of bill that can get 99 votes? Who, who should we have an eye on, in your opinion, Jeannie? I, I think all of the above. I think Romney. I think, you know, these these Republicans who have proven willing. We saw six of them talking to the White House in particular over the last few weeks. But from the White House's perspective, any 10 they could possibly get. But again, and, and I he, hate to keep coming back to him, but this is all about the Joes, Joe Biden and Joe Manchin. Because as much as Congress people want to show their constituents they're acting in a bipartisan way or trying to, the president also needs to show Joe Manchin that he is attempting to reach a across the aisle so that if they have to go to reconciliation, they don't right. lose him. And that is critical because that's where this probably ends up. Right. Now, I, I mentioned Murkowski because the president uh, was planning to sign into law a bill. I think this is interesting. A bill that waives a requirement that foreign flagged cruise ships that go from the U.S. up to uh, Alaska, which is also part of the U.S., stop in Canada because of a, a 19th century law that requires a foreign flagged ship uh, to, to stop somewhere else. Foreign ships uh, aren't able to just make trips in the U.S., which uh, is sort of a protectionist policy. But with the, uh, the limitations on travel in Canada, that blocked um, that blocked Alaska cruises, essentially. So this is big for Alaska and big for the cruise industry. Just wanted to point that out. That actually is a bill that is becoming law. There is bipartisanship. One other thing on my calendar, Emily, have you been watching this Endless Frontiers bill with a, a bunch of money for R&D? Uh, that's supposed to get a vote uh, this week, right, in the Senate? Yeah, so this is the bill that is kind of Congress's response to China. It's sort of like, let's boost up American manufacturing and American research and development. And hey, while we're at it, let's throw a couple billion dollars at that whole chip shortage that we're dealing with right now. It's a bipartisan bill. It's sponsored by a Republican as well as Democratic Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who has said, hey, let's get this thing to the floor. Let's get this thing passed. Thing is, we've seen a ton of amendments submitted by Republican senators, and that's really holding up the process. You heard Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell say today that he really thought that they had to go through the entire process. And remember, at the end of this week, the Senate is out for a little bit. So it's kind of a, if they don't get it done now, then we're not going to see it done until about mid-June. Jeannie, is this on your radar? I noticed the procedural vote earlier was 86 to 11. Is this a glide path to, to passage, do you think? Or how tough is this, really, real quick? No such thing as a glide path. And to, and to Emily's point, while this did seem bipartisan, now that the Republicans are accusing the administration of moving money on amendments there from the bill that got them down to the 1.7, I think it ends up being a bit more contentious than it was. We will see this week. This is a good show. Thank you so much to Congresswoman Madeline Dean for calling in earlier, Democrat from Pennsylvania. Thank you again to my co-host, Bloomberg government congressional reporter Emily Wilkins, and to Bloomberg politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano. That is it for us. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. 
Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.